We have acknowledged it on this podcast a few times before. I think we all know and agree that the first years of the Roaring Twenties of the 21st century are going to go down in history books as tumultuous, to say the very least. And while the headline stories of 2020 and the beginning of 2021 have been really focused on the worldwide COVID pandemic and the end of the Trump administration, we've actually also seen more progress and movement towards rectifying another centuries-long epidemic in the United States, America's ongoing struggle with racism and racial inequality. You'll remember tensions reached a fever pitch in the summer of last year as protesters who were fed up with years of over-aggressive policing tactics and far too many police shootings of unarmed black men took to the streets to voice their frustrations. And for a while, it almost seemed that America might be at an inflection point and might finally be ready to have the serious conversations and make the long-needed changes to begin to address the original sin. But as the chorus of progressive and equality-minded activists found opportunities to amplify their message, the counter-arguments from some in right-wing media and politics and on social media also began to get louder. And at times, it can seem that the divide has grown even larger. Some might even argue that a country that has far too long ignored and avoided discussing race has now delved into the topic so deeply that it permeates all parts of our lives. For many, that's a welcome change. For others, it's a fear. I'm Clay Aiken, and this week Politicon jumps into this topic again, but this time with a very specific question. How can the issues of racial inequality be addressed and combated without becoming an us-versus-them argument and dividing the nation along racial lines even further than it already is? Heather McGee is an author, an economist, and an academic whose new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, is a masterpiece of thoughtful journalism, storytelling, and wise economic policy. In it, she argues that the politics of racial equity in America shouldn't be a zero-sum game, and that, in fact, stamping out racism and historically race-based policy in America will, in turn, do as much to help low- and middle-income white Americans as anyone else. I'll ask her, why do conversations about race always end up feeling zero-sum? Is racism in America getting better, worse, or is it just more prominently being discussed? And how can we craft policies that build up all Americans while also tearing down racial biases? And of course, how the heck are we going to get along? Hi, Clay. How are you? I am well. I'm kind of pumped about having you. <laughs> I am not. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. The producers can can tell you that I um, I don't often jump on the phone and send a message and say, can we get this person? But I did with you because I had, I read an excerpt of your book um, in, uh, in the New York Times, I think it was, and was just so in love with it that I immediately called and said, I don't know how you're going to get in touch with her, but track her down somehow, please, <laughs> because I really want to talk to her about this, awesome. this book and this whole, I mean, I'm I'm just so I'm totally anyway, I'm just totally fascinated and I'm so thrilled that you are um here because it's sort of a I mean it's sort of a fresh look at something that I and looking at and framing this incredibly important issue in a way that I am surprised a lot of people have not picked up on 
<laughs> as well as as you have. So, um, I mean, I, I just mostly want to get kind of started by uh, talking about what brought you to write The Sum of Us. Um, mm-hmm. I've I, I told people in the intro, the full title, The Sum of Us, um, though, is is your new book. Um, and what what made you kind of realize that these some of these discussions were becoming zero sum like why are so many race discussions zero sum well first of all clay it's a real pleasure to be with you in this conversation and um you know i came at what ended up being a journey i i quit my job running an economic think tank that was designing and advancing solutions to economic inequality because our kind of basic formula was to do the research on the issue, show how, you know, tens of millions of American families were struggling with some bad economic policy decision and try to convince policymakers to make better economic decisions. And increasingly, it felt like all that data and all that research about how it could be good for the economy, good for American families, was sort of falling on deaf ears. And it was falling on deaf ears because there was a group of legislators in Congress and in state houses who felt accountable to a set of voters who were seeing the world through a very different lens than the kind of dollars and cents rational economic self-interest that we assumed they would. And it was really that lens of the zero-sum story. The idea that progress for people of color would come at white people's expense. And that zero sum, that idea that, you know, a dollar in my pocket must mean a dollar out of yours, has undergirded this resistance to the kinds of economic solutions that, yes, would help Black and brown people, and yes, would help people at the very bottom of the economic ladder, too, but would also be good for our economy, would also help white people, would also help middle class folks. And it's that sort of self-defeating bargain Um that I I felt like I had to kind of change everything in my life to a certain degree to get to the bottom of, because otherwise we really weren't going to make progress in this country. Can you can you illustrate it by you telling people about the the story of the the pool the city pool in Alabama and I mean because that that story really grabbed me as oh my god see this is sort of a perfect example of how race based policy did one thing but now it would I mean but had it not happened it would have benefited everyone can you kind of give people how that was that an inflection point for you was that story something for yeah. you that kind of illustrated it for you too. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, it's funny, it's sort of a Rorschach test. When people hear this, sometimes they think of their own childhoods and the the lack of a public pool or this, you know, private swim clubs in their own childhoods. And it's just been so interesting to go across the country and talk to people about this. But basically, the United States in the 1930s and 40s went on this building boom of public amenities, public libraries, schools, parks, and yes, pools. And these are not the kind of public pools that I'm ever used to seeing. Mm-hmm. These are not the kind of pools, public pools that I'm used to seeing. These are these grand resort-style pools that used to house over a thousand swimmers. And they were all over the country. They were paid for by public tax dollars. They were kind of a glittering concrete and water symbol of 
a broader government commitment to the American people having a high standard of living that was kind of the envy of the world in the middle of the 20th century. And yet, like so much of those public benefits and those public policies, subsidies for housing, um, government paying the cost of college so that people could graduate with very little debt to no debt, all of these big public benefits, so much of that was done in the either explicitly racist basis, like our housing developments and our housing subsidies, which excluded Black families by design and by government law, or ended up actually only being really provided to Black families. I mean, Mm -hmm. excuse me, or ended up only really being provided to white families, like the benefits of the GI Bill, for example. And that meant that the public pools themselves were also reflective of that racial hierarchy. And many of them across the country were for whites only or were segregated. And Mm -hmm. then as the civil rights movement empowered Black families to say, hey, those are our tax dollars, too, that are funding these pools. We want our kids to swim. Instead of integrating the pools, (laughs) many towns across the country, and this is important, Clay, not just in, you know, the Jim Crow South. You're right. um, Decided to drain their public pools. I'm not laughing because it's them. funny. I'm laughing because it's ridiculous. It's but absurd, right? Yes, but it's but it's fascinating that I didn't even think about that. But I know exactly what you're. I mean, there are examples well beyond Alabama. But yes, keep going. Sorry. No, I mean this is the thing. You know, there's. It's been so interesting to hear people say, "Oh yeah, I remember." You know, my mother used to swim in a pool, or you know. Um, I talked to somebody in D.C. who was like, yeah, this is a weird thing where everybody went to these private swim clubs and I didn't get why everybody went to these private swim clubs. So basically what ended up happening was that these public pools, which used to be a feature of the American landscape, um, you know, many of them were drained, filled in with dirt. Um, in Montgomery, Alabama, where where I visit um, to walk the grounds of Oak Park, which is the central park in the city, Um, They closed that park and the entire Montgomery Parks and Recreation Department for Mm -hmm. a decade to Mm -hmm. avoid Black people, you know, sitting at the bingo tables at the rec center or going to feed the animals in the zoo. You know, it's which might not have which might not have harmed the upper class white people in Montgomery because they went to the private clubs. But a whole bunch of folks who grew up in the middle class and the low class are also were also white and they got screwed too. A hundred percent. Because they had no park. It, exactly. Yeah. It was really it's what you lose as a society when you move from, you know, generous public benefits and public amenities to saying, you know what, everyone, each individual family is on their own to pay for all of this. It's it's what we've done with 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 college. It's what we've done in large degree with K through 12 after integration healthcare. with healthcare. It's what um, we do with, you know, just our with the pandemic. You know, it's like if you can afford to stay at home and buy your PPE and, you know, hire your kid's former teacher to have a little pod in your backyard. You know, I mean, right. it's, it's really the thing is that what used to be a public good becomes a private luxury. And so very wealthy people do fine. Honestly, upper middle class people kind of run to get it, right? And actually stretch themselves to get it like the way that upper middle class families, you know, move out to rich white 
neighborhoods in order to afford these these quote unquote good school districts and end up paying, you know, way too much and commuting for way too long and all of that. But working in middle class people of all races lose out. And that to me feels like that drained pool politics of cheering the destruction of the things that we hold in common as a people has really been the defining feature of politics in my lifetime. I was born in 1980, and the result has been more inequality and insecurity, has been a stagnant minimum wage, weakened labor unions, you know, student debt crisis, all of these ways in which we're just not providing for the basics because our population is more diverse and the majority of white voters continue to vote against providing for those basics for everyone. Well, you know, it, as you're as you're telling this, it make, makes me remember one thing that I used to be very proud of my own hometown for the mm. the Wake County schools in in Raleigh, the Raleigh area. Uh, back in the late seventies, chose instead of yes. uh, diversifying the schools here by in by race and and assigning kids to school to have racial equity, um, right. they chose to do it by socioeconomic status instead so that there were never more than a certain number of, certain percentage of kids on free and reduced lunch in each school and never um, more than a certain number of kids with wealthy, only one working parent households uh, in any school either. Mm-hmm. And and that was exactly how schools were for my entire childhood in mm. Wake County schools, they've since changed and and don't have diverse schools as much as I they should here. But mm-hmm. that was the policy then. And, and, you know, interestingly, it did also help with racial balance quite a bit yeah. because we know that systemically there are more people, brown, black and brown people who live in poverty than there should be. Mm-hmm. But it, it also helped with racial equality, but it took the onus off of it being about race. And and it was very effective for a long time. And Wake County Schools got a lot of praise for it um, also. But it makes me wonder, do we talk, do we not talk enough about race or do we talk too much about it? I don't think we talk about it the right way. Um, you know, this, the Wake County example that you mentioned is one in which, um, you know, there's been a concerted effort by by right-wing actors, including actually the Koch brothers, you know, the, uh-huh. some of the wealthiest people <laughs> on the planet, to, to destroy that voluntary integration system. Yeah, they did it. And, you know, I mean, right? So it's like, wow, you know, really? You've got all these things you could do with your time and your money? You're trying to stop little brown and black and white kids from going to school together? But, you know, that that is it, right? There is this desire to buy people who benefit very much from inequality and very much from, from division um, to sow these, these, these divisions among working and middle class people um, of all races. And, and it does economically benefit them because then you don't have a big cross-class coalition saying, hey, we want to do these things um, Sorry. Then you don't have a big cross-racial coalition saying, "Hey, you know, we need these things in our community," and so you end up not having high high enough taxes. You end up not having um, the kinds of public responses to public problems that are necessary. So you ask, you know, do we talk too much about race and not enough about class? I mean, the reason why Wake County had to talk about class instead of race is that a reactionary group on the Supreme Court really pretty shortly after Brown versus Board of Education said, actually, 
eh, we don't really mean it. We don't really mean mm-hmm. integrating and and really dealing with what it would take to do that. And in fact, you know, we should actually be colorblind, meaning that we're going to treat efforts to denigrate and degrade and deny opportunities to black and brown children by recognizing their race as morally and legally equivalent to efforts to create diversity and integrity, right? Which is itself sort of a crazy thing that happened in our court system with this this colorblind ideology. And it's really held back progress. Um, you know, today, the share of black and brown students in selective colleges is actually less than it was 30 years ago. Um, and yet you still have legacy students and faculty students, you know, <laughs> having their thumbs on the scale. And so we're really, I think, at a place where... We need to have a smarter conversation about race that incorporates class. And that's what I try to do in The Some of Us. I try to say that since the beginning, racism has really been inextricable from greed. That the way we got this zero-sum worldview, this idea that out of our entire people here in this society, there are opposing teams and you're kind of rung on the ladder of human value is dependent on somebody else being one rung below you, was itself a tool of the ruling elite, a tool of really the worst elements of American society, mm-hmm. the, the colonialist, the, the genocidal slaveholders. I mean, really just the people for whom having, you know, white indentured servants feel like they were better than black enslaved Africans and indigenous, you know, people was really important to maintaining white power over black and brown people. And and we see that kind of theme over and over generation against generation, right? Where's this idea of job competition of, you know, again, it's like, a, you know, a dollar in, in a black person's pocket, pocket must mean a dollar out of a white person's right. pocket. And yet, you know, the only people getting rich under that system are a pretty slim Already share rich. <laughs> of rich right. and powerful people. So I think we need to talk about racism, um, you know, as I say in the subtitle of my book, and the cost to everyone. We need to zoom out the aperture and say, this is a, a silly old belief that has only ever benefited a very narrow segment of our population. And in fact... There's so much more that we can gain through being in solidarity with one another and not pretending that those who are struggling today are somehow, you know, different of character and therefore less deserving of help, which is the the, the narrative that has undermined social solidarity and keeps, you know, tens of millions of people struggling. What, do you think that the word racism or racist turns people ears off. There was a book written a few years back um, by Mary Catherine Ham called End of Discussion. And essentially, she discuss- she talks about how nowadays we've gotten to this place in society where if if you have an R behind your name or a D behind your name, you really turn pe- people decide to stop listening to you regardless of what you might have to say that's valuable. And I think that the there's I mean, I wanted you on as a guest because I think there's so much value in what you have to say. But who do you think the audience is for your book? Who do you think, uh, do you think that there are people who need to hear your message 
and I think there are lots who do, but do you think they will are the people who will pick up this book? Or And if not, how do we make sure we get it to the people who need to hear it? That's such a good point. I mean, we really are in a place of very heightened negative partisanship where, you know, just the idea of Republicans and the idea of Democrats really, you know, is a sorting in a way that it really didn't used to be. And honestly, it's really along these issues of race, right? Mainly, it's yeah. been a sorting of white people. Um, sort of like if you came, if you came to the Obama coalition as a white person to become a Democrat, you know, you you had different racial attitudes than people who stayed out outside, right? And so, um, and in a larger sense, the majority of white people haven't voted for a Democrat for president since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, right? But so, but, but North Carolina, yeah. North Carolina, and Indiana, yep, um, went for went for Barack Obama in two thousand eight. That's right. Rare moment of pride in my state, <laughs> um, and uh, and and states like Michigan and Wisconsin weren't competitive. In yep. 2008 and 2012. Yeah. Um, and so there is a, there is an argument, I think, to be made that the country may not be completely racist, that some mm. people, a lot of people voted for Obama. I mean, it's the most fascinating group mm-hmm. of people that mm-hmm. y- your next book should be about. But if this one isn't already about them, but, um, <laughs> the, but this is this group of people who voted twice for Obama, mm-hmm. but then moved to Trump. And... I wonder why why Democrats c- clearly clearly are able to attract them when they talk about policy, mm-hmm. but lose them when they talk about sort of social issues or race issues yeah. um, like this. Wh- where is these are these are people who voted for the first black president, some of them twice, but then were taken in by this us versus them argument yeah. four years later. Yeah, I think a couple of things help explain that. One, the right-wing message about race got really loud and really clear in that us versus them in the Obama era, right? So it was, you know, if you look at what Fox News was talking about when George W. Bush was president— you know, it wasn't always about race at all. It was about terrorism. It was about taxes, you know. And yet then— you know, more and more in the latter part of the Obama era, you know, you had the Tea Party coming in, you had the funding of that kind of right-wing infrastructure, and they figured out, okay, this is the formula. It's it's hate the government because it coddles white people, um, sorry, because it coddles people of color and trust the market. And then you had, like, you know, just a real stereo blast of that. And then you had Donald Trump come in and and put that message on steroids. And so I do think, you know, one of the lessons for me in the research to, to write The Sum of Us is that, you know, everything we believe as humans comes from a story we've been told. And so I want to look at who are the storytellers? What is the story they're telling? How loud, you know, <laughs> are they? Um, but I do think that this book is for... Honestly, almost everyone, you know, I, I talked to somebody the other day. They said, my black coworker, gave, it was a white woman. She said, my black coworker gave me this book and now I'm going to give it to my racist uncle. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> good. Want, right? Listen, I agree with you that it's for everyone. <laughs> and and, and I, I've, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll keep, you, you know, you, you remind me a lot of, in, in some ways, Reverend Barber and mm-hmm. the fact that his mm-hmm. Poor People's Campaign, yep. he's been on the podcast and, um, 
he foc- he he's, he kind of tries to get people to focus on the fact that so many of these things that we're fighting for help everyone. I mean, yes. I ran for Congress in in a very 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 red district in North Carolina. I knew that it was red when I got into it, but it was quite quite rural. It mm-hmm. had a little bit of suburbia in it, but it was mostly rural. And I'd be out in Bear Creek, Chatham County, which you know is is not a not a wealthy area in in yeah. North Carolina, very impoverished, almost almost all white, and the same the same issues, the same government programs that serve people in the inner city were also serving people in Bear Creek, but they just didn't want to believe that you know they were also getting help from the government. They were right. getting the earned incomes tax credit. We mm-hmm. we have we've seen on the right side of the media aisle, I'll call it. I'm not going to get into the Congress yet. But we've seen a lot of people in the right-wing media do this us-versus-them thing for quite a while. And Mm -hmm. it is evident when you go out into Bear Creek or you go into the places that you win in the the Midwest and in the South, that people are voting against their own interests. I get that. And I think a lot of people get that. A lot of progressives get that also. But we're not in my opinion, messaging it the right way to combat the messaging from the from the other side. So what you talk about in the book a lot is, I mean, it's far more people, folks who are listening, it is far more than policy driven. It's very, there are wonderful stories in it and, and you illustrate what you're talking about so well. But there is a lot of policy heft to it. You came from a think tank. This is your, you're an economist you know, background, you you know what you're talking about, which I love, and I love that it's policy-driven. But so little of what gets done in America right now, Heather, mm-hmm. <laughs> is policy-focused. It's yeah. so politics-focused. That's right. And do you think that the message, I mean, I think you've already answered this a little bit, but I want to delve into it more. The messaging from equality-minded people progressives, whether that be Democrats or some Republicans, but anyone who believes that systemic racism is a problem, who believes that there are racial issues in America that must be finally talked about and addressed, do you feel like the messaging is right, or what do we need to do to change the messaging? So, I think that we need to expand the messaging. Um, I think we are talking about, when we talk about racial injustice, we are talking about life and death for, you know, our brothers and sisters in this society, right? And there needs to continue to be the work to create bridges of human empathy because otherwise we will always be vulnerable to the attacks that try to divide us, right? So I don't think we should by any means give up on the idea that when you see, you know, Tamir Rice be gunned down in seconds yeah. in Cleveland, a little 12-year-old boy um, by the police, that you shouldn't, you know, have a problem with that. Like, I think we need to continue to be clear that that Black mothers and fathers live in f- a fear that no parent should have to live in. And, right. and we've got to recognize that when we say Black Lives Matter, it is the zero-sum story that makes people think, well, well does that mean white lives don't matter? Right? That is, that is not what folks are saying when we say Black Lives Matter. Um, it has nothing to do with the need to make white life worse, right? By by making sure that Black people are safe from, from police violence. So that is so important. And also, Clay, I do think that we need to do 
in many ways, actually, you know, sort of not that widely remarked upon, but what President Biden did in his first address on race as president. And, you know, he's an interesting figure, right? The sort of Black president's best friend, you know, who's a white guy right. from Scranton. Um, and, you know, really is in many ways um, someone who just doesn't get the goat up. That, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't racially polarize in the same way that, oh, you know, right. ba- Barack Obama did or even that Hillary Clinton did. Um, and so... But he said in his first address, he says, for too long, we've allowed a narrow, cramped view of the promise of this nation to fester. We've bought the view that America's a zero-sum game in many cases. He said, if you succeed, I fail. If you get ahead, I fall behind. If you get the job, I lose mine. Maybe worst of all, if I hold you down, I lift myself up. So he really named it. And I think that's really important. He went on to say that racism has a cost for everyone and that our society would obviously be so much better off if we didn't have these massive disparities. And I think that's a story that Democrats have to tell. I think it's a story that people who are promoting racial justice have to tell. Um, You know, I think it shouldn't require spelling it out this way, but if you recognize how deeply embedded that zero-sum story is, I think we just have to realize we have to say it, that when we talk about white privilege, right, the privilege to have a slightly better funded school, the privilege to not be afraid of the police, the privilege to have more access to health care, we're not saying that the world we want is one in which white people don't have those things. We're saying but it's that Black people have them too. If the part of it that makes you happiest is the security of knowing that not only do you have it, but somebody else doesn't, then yeah, you're going to have that gift, going to have to give that up. How did you choose which internet service provider to use? You know, the sad thing is most of us really never get the opportunity to choose because ISPs operate sort of like monopolies in all the regions that they serve. They use that monopoly power. They take advantage of customers like all of us. We only have one choice, and then they give us data caps and streaming throttles, and, you know, the list goes on. But the worst part of it is you're sort of forced into taking the service from the internet service provider in your area, but once you do, a lot of them log your internet activity, and then they go and sell your data to other big tech companies or to advertisers. So I don't want people seeing my business. I want to prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity. Um, so I protect all my devices with ExpressVPN. And I'm, I'm telling you folks, you should too. So you want to know how they do it. It's really just a simple app. You put it on your computer or your smartphone, and then it encrypts all your network data. And encrypts is a word that is for people far smarter than me, but it kind of makes it so that other people can't read it, essentially. Um, (laughs) And then they take all your data, they encrypt it, and then they send it through a secure server so that your ISP that you're forced into using can't see any of your activity, and therefore they can't sell your activity, and they can't target you for ads and all that stuff. And, I mean, if you're like me, Pretty much all your life is on the internet, what TV shows you watch, who you email, what news articles, what news sources you read from, and all the people you've messaged and 
everything. It gets tracked by tech giants, and then they sell your information for profit. <laughs> That's the reason that I recommend ExpressVPN as the way, the best way to hide your online activity from your internet service provider. All you got to do, you got to download the app, you tap one button on your device, and then you're protected. And ExpressVPN does all of this, and it doesn't slow down your connection at all. That's why it's the number one rated service by CNET and Wired. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off all your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash heck. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heck to get three extra months for free. Go to expressvpn.com slash heck right now to learn more or look for the link in our show notes. There are some people who have taken, I won't say that it's zero sum, but there are, there are some people who do take a little bit more aggressive tack than you do. And and I, I don't, I dare not ask you to, to comment on anyone in particular yourself, but I'll say it was very promising to me to see someone like Ibram Kendi, who is incredibly outspoken, the, the author of How to Be Anti-Racist, but who's, who has at times caught a little bit of flack for some of the things that he has said. Um, I think one of them was the only way to stop future, to, to atone for past discrimination is with present discrimination. The only way to, to handle, to get rid of present discrimination is with future discrimination. And who has, eh, I'm not completely in love with some of those statements at least, but he said, your book is the one he was waiting for. So in a way, you have, you're able to kind of bridge a little bit of a divide between people who have a little bit more aggressive tactics when it comes to this race issue and and reaching out to the other side. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, do you consider yourself a conciliate, conciliator in any way? Or do you, I don't think that your ideas are, 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 are um, outside of the mainstream. I think they're just looking at what should be done with much clearer eyes. Um, but you, but there are some people who feel like let me ask you about this reparations. How mm-hmm. what's your position on reparations and whether they should be addressed or be considered or how mm-hmm. if they take place they should be um yeah. made. Um in the sum of us I make it really clear that today's racial wealth divide the fact that if you are an average white high school dropout family you have more mm-hmm. wealth than the average black college graduate family. More home equity. You'll have equity. to explain that a little bit. More home equity. More home okay. <laughs> equity. More savings. More in a you know in a stock account. More more cash in the bank, on average, because not because obviously you know if you're a white high school dropout family that you've done more education or have better income or, you know, quote unquote, work harder and are paid better than a college graduate black family, but because of the way that history shows up in your wallet. Because so much of our our financial cushion today is really about interest paid on decisions that were made long before we were born. And that is where we are being held back as a society because black and brown families, but particularly black families who are doing everything they can, working multiple jobs, closing the education gap, you know, despite having to do it in a, you know, by debt because we stopped 
having the government pick up the tab for college, right? When when black and brown mm-hmm. students went to college in great numbers, you know, and yet still are facing this big divide that they can never, ever close. And that's because for the greater part of the 20th century, the government was incredibly generous at making avenues and subsidizing homeownership and and savings and retirement security and did it explicitly in a racist way. That is holding the entire country back. And so here's what I say about reparations. If you read my book, you both understand that racism has a cost for everyone and that the formula that helps support white middle-class people today was done in a racially exclusive manner. And so, of course, imagine the benefit to Black families and to us all of your average Black family having ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars more in the bank, of there not being this kind of black tax on home ownership, where you know we have a home ownership gap and a housing value gap that is really traceable to the maps that the federal government drew to exclude black neighborhoods from subsidies and lending right. and mortgages. So but that's why I, that- I call reparations I think the resistance to reparations among many white people is is twofold. And it really, both of those things come down to the zero sum. There's this sense that if Black people are getting something, that it has to cost me somehow. That it's going to be from me. And that's not true, right? It's the government that excluded, that drew the maps, that did the segregating, and therefore it's the government, which we all pay into today. Right, and, and, and people and could make that, that argument. Needs to that, pay. But, but, but the amount of the taxes that each of us pay, uh, what, 35 cents of what we pay goes to, <laughs> goes to social, social programs anyway. So the, 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 even the percent that per, one person would pay, right. if we were to do reparations, would be, would be minimal. But, I mean, make the argument to the young or middle-aged white man in, in Michigan who lives in a trailer and whose parents didn't have a job and who grew up. And, you know, there, there are going to be a lot of those folks who say, Nobody in my family owned slaves. No one in my ancestry did. We were all too poor to do it. There are there not are there not white families in America who could make the argument that they've really never gotten the opportunities that others have as well. Granted, yes, they do have the ability to walk down the street and not have to fear police officers. But economically, I mean, how do you make an argument for something like reparations to these voters who have run to Trump? I think you do it in a few ways. One, it can't be the only thing we do to solve economic insecurity today, right? I think we should do things like baby bonds, which give you know money to every child born in America, but give mm-hmm. more money to fam to parents and families that have low wealth, right? And so it's it's something called targeted universalism. You're saying everybody needs help, and we also need to recognize that you know, to take my pool metaphor forward, you know, we need to refill the pool, right? The public pool for everyone. 
And we need to recognize that some people are standing at six feet. Some people are standing at three feet, right? That that some people are totally underwater and some people are just, you know, uh, treading water. And that is because of public policy. And so we need to fix it in a public policy way. But ultimately, and this you're, is And you're why, talking about this based on economic level, though, right? So more so the larger, larger bond, baby bonds to families who are socioeconomically disadvantaged. Yes, right? but I'm talking about specifically wealth here. And by wealth, I don't mean income, right? It, uh, so that means, as I said, that there's, so let's say you've got, um, you know, two waitresses, right? One mm-hmm. is a white waitress, one is a black waitress. The white waitress may have an uncle who worked at GM and who left her some stock. The white waitress may have an aunt or a parent who left her a house, those are the kinds of wealth things. That's not about the paycheck and the tips they bring home. So so I just want to just clarify, because I want to make sure I'm following it. You're talking about a net worth-based thing. So we're not talking about income level mm-hmm. or what, what, what truly wealth and how much someone has. So if, so if, uh, if someone in West Virginia said, listen, I literally ain't got to my name but debt. And nobody in my family has ever had anything to their name but debt. Those folks would be eligible for these these extra benefits also. Is that right? This is still not a race-based thing, correct? That's right. That's baby bonds. So that's right. one way to do it. But I also mm-hmm. think, ideally, we would have enough literacy in this country. So many people don't know the degree to which the government denied the opportunities for my parents and my grandparents as a Black woman to own things in this country and then subsidize the ability of white families to own things. And as a country, we can't... I'm fine with a a class-based approach that, that recognizes net worth because that's really, as I said, where history shows up in your wallet. And because mm-hmm. of this, you 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 end up getting at you know, the 13 to 1 racial wealth gap, net worth gap between Black and white families. But I don't want to do it just because we're going to remain ignorant of a history that's barely even passed. You know what I'm saying? So right. so that's what I mean. Like, it's fine if if every American really knows that the federal government drew maps of this country and said, Negroes in this area, high risk, do not lend to this area. Right. Do not if you if you have a, a housing development you want to build, you are required to include in the housing contracts that you won't sell to a black person. And this is not in 17-something, 18-something. This is 1950, right? So I think I'm fine with us moving towards class-based stuff, but not out of ignorance. Because that means that we are we are doomed to repeat it. And that means but, that the people who want to keep us ignorant of our of our very recent history are winning. And I think not, that reparations is a is a is seed capital for the America we are becoming. There, there's sometimes I want to I think to myself, and again, I'm, I only have the experience in my own state of of seeing some of this stuff. But I I do think to myself, I feel like we ought to invest a little bit of money in educating white rural folks too, because the education level, you talk about ignorance, the education level in some of those areas is is a part, and the the willful ignorance in some of those areas is a part of why people don't know about the things mm-hmm. you just talked about, and a part mm-hmm. of why they they are arguably, 
not all. Obviously, my listen, my family is from the sticks. Um, they're not all completely ignorant, but but some of them are more susceptible to believing things that aren't true, for mm-hmm. example. So mm-hmm. is there not an argument to be had that we must do, do more in some of these rural areas to also bring them into the 21st century um, well, in Clay, the same way. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, that that you would think that I'm not saying that. You know, it's, it's a funny zero sum, right? It's like, well, because, only because, only because I am an economic progressive. I think we need right. to have debt-free college, a high minimum wage, right. public schools that are like palaces in every single neighborhood. We need things like the Tennessee Valley Authority to bring rural bro- uh-huh. broadband all over the country, right? Uh-huh. I'm starting from a place of saying, from the hood to the holler, as Charles Booker would say, we need to reinvest in this country. And in fact, we stopped investing in this country when the country became more diverse. And, And that doesn't mean I think we should only invest in Black people now. I think our source of our greatness is the diversity of our people. And I think we have to invest in our people. So it's interesting to me that you know, I assumed. Just this, right? Yeah, exactly. No, listen, as, as you say it, I'm thinking to myself, well, that's interesting to me that I assumed that too, because I'm now thinking, I don't think she said that, but you're right. But I did assume that. And mm-hmm. I wonder why, and I'm going to not sleep tonight because of it, but I no, do no, wonder no, sleep, no, sleep. You know, <laughs> But I do wonder why a little bit. And I do, I wonder also, you know, is, do you think that people are afraid I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, I've mm. lost everything I've ever tried to compete in, so I have nothing left to lose at this point. I have no problem saying <laughs> what I feel. But I do wonder, are there people who are – do you feel like there is too much fear when it comes to talking about race issues, all these issues, that people are – you know, I, I worry sometimes if I advocate for uh, more spending for – rural white areas in the country that it will seem to others like I'm not saying we need to invest just as much into um, black neighborhoods and black Mm -hmm. majority black schools. I worry about saying that myself. And I wonder if the reason that I said it here in the way that I did was because I worried you might think that I was talking zero sum. So Mm. do we all have a little bit of fear about even discussing these things? And isn't that the problem number one? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. I think we're also, we're at the late stages of 50 years of draining the public pool, right? And so it does feel like, you know, we're just fighting over crumbs. It does feel like obviously there won't be enough to go around. So you're going to have to choose, um, you know, which which families get help. But that's that's never been the way that any society has ever flourished. Well, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, the Republicans in Congress certainly thought there wasn't enough to go around for COVID relief, but we figured it out, right? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. So that's a whole nother yeah. thing. But, but I but, think, Clay, you're right, though, that there is something, um, I think there is a fear, I think, you know, when I started the journey and I identified, oh, there's this zero sum, the the sociologists who, who did the research on this, the social scientists who did the research on this, they showed that that zero sum worldview is much more prevalent among white folks than black folks. Oh, yeah. And I think there's a fear, right, that... Well, listen, okay. listen, black folks know that the whole world has been geared towards white folks for 
centuries and they don't have any expectation that anybody's going to take any shit away from us, you know? So mm-hmm. <laughs> they know, so it's not zero sum for, for black people because they know we ain't never going to take it. Our, I mean, we, the white privilege is not going away. <laughs> people can talk about it, but they're no, nobody's willing to give it up um, necessarily. They, it, that's, that's not going to happen. So white people mm-hmm. are threatened. Certain, some white people are certainly threatened by this idea that, you know, money is going to black people in the inner city and not out here to my trailer park when, mm-hmm. you know, ironically, they don't realize that that earned income tax credit, you got it too, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I do, but I do wonder if there's, there is a fear amongst white folks in the Midwest and the South. That, I mean, I, I tell you what fascinates me a lot, and I, I, I wonder if you have a thought on it. I, I think... I worry as a as a progressive myself and an an economic progressive for sure um that sometimes our my party I don't know what party you f- belong to or feel belong to but my party the democrats <laughs> um it sometimes forget that if we don't make sh- that unfortunately in in the human race in order to make progress, you have to have some, you can have everyone in the minority, but you have to have some in the majority have the good common sense and decency and empathy, to use the word used earlier, to understand that everyone deserves equal rights and everyone deserves human rights. And I wonder sometimes if the Democrats have strayed, have forgotten that a little bit, because I look at a place, I, I look at a place like Mississippi, where the demographics are stark in the sense that it's the closest state in America to being half white and half black. It's a 40%, 40% black state, and yet it's still the reddest state in America. And I, and I wonder, how many white people in Mississippi vote for Democrats? Is it, is it simply, has, is Mississippi a sign of where we may end up being if we don't learn how to speak to Midwestern Obama voters um, again, like we used to, the, the mm-hmm. Tom Daschles of South Dakota, the B- Dick Gephardts of Missouri, states mm-hmm. where, you know, Democrats and progressive ideas, equality-minded ideas, lifting people from the, from the bottom up, rising tide lifts all boats sort of mentality, used to have a lot more diversity in our tent. And now mm-hmm. it has less, especially in the Midwest and in places like Mississippi, where the Democrat Party has become majority-minority almost, um, how, how do we avoid becoming a place like— the demographics aren't changing enough in Mississippi to make Mississippi the blue state that God knows it should be, um, based on its racial makeup at least. How, how do we prevent ourselves from letting, getting the parties to a place where they are racially divided too? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a good question. You know, I I think there's a couple of things. I think there's the ultimately the responsibility for really figuring that out is less with the, you know, black Democratic councilmen from, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, and and more with, with white voters in Mississippi who who need to figure out, you know, how deep does the zero sum run? How threatened am I? 
by the right, idea but don't we need to help teach them? political power. Yes. Yes, I can't. Honestly, I ain't got the patience. I, I ain't got the patience. I, this book, I was about know? to say I ain't got the patience to learn to wait for them to learn on their own. Damn it! So <laughs> we, yeah, I mean, I yes, there there's certainly a teaching. I guess I just um, I want to share some responsibility for the shift. Oh yeah, it's le- you know what I mean. Like it's it's not so much about what Black Democrats have done wrong. I do too. No, um, no, I don't even think it's know? about what Black Democrats have done wrong. I don't, I would actually don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think sometimes. I think sometimes young Democrats of all races are, might be, you know, I was talking to a friend, I'm going off, I'm totally getting casual and going off script here. It's okay. But I was, I was talking to a friend um, the other day about how I look on my Facebook page and I think about, you know, we all know no child is born racist, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and kids aren't. They develop it later. But it fascinates me and breaks my heart to see people who I went to high school with, who I had no reason to believe when I was in high school had any racial animosity whatsoever, who, you know, their friend groups were very diverse and everybody slept over at each other's house and prom, went to prom together and all that stuff, completely diverse uh, friend groups. But I look at some of those same people now and the things that they say on Facebook and post on Facebook, uh, white friends who, it breaks my heart because I think what the happened in the last 20 years Mm -hmm. to make these folks have so much resentment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is it is resentment. But mm-hmm. what happened in 20 years to have you go from being incredibly inclusive to now feeling that you're going to be canceled? And I mean, I, I, that that worries me as a as a liberal yeah. that wants yeah. progress to be made because I think yeah. how do we when when's the next is the next person we cancel going to be the ally, the last ally that was left? You know, I mean, what is the, how do we, how do we keep from losing some of these people who I don't think we lost before? We had lost mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a huge part of that is the Fox News effect, right? There's a new identity, yeah. right? Just, yeah. it's just. There's just a new coherent story and it sings a great song and it's consistent. It's got the same mm-hmm. melody. It sticks in your head. And, and the data shows that listening to right wing narratives on the media makes you it, it's it's so much more powerful. It's way more powerful than than MSNBC or CNN. Right. It's just a whole nother drug. Right. So that's a huge piece of it that I, I think we have to deal with, you know, in terms of media reform and all that. We can't have, you know, disinformation and hate for profit as, you know, the major force in our media (laughs) and have a multiracial democracy. I just don't see how it's compatible in the long run. Now, I also think what's happened in the last 20 years is we've lost tens of thousands of factories, is student debt has mushroomed, Mm -hmm. is is the minimum wage hasn't been raised. God, I love you. These (laughs) things... Right. I love that you bring it back to policy. I know I love that. Right. I love that you bring it back to policy. But keep going. It keep is going. true that if if you stop seeing the 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 American dream as possible, you have to figure out who took it from you. Yeah. And you know, and either, if you got somebody saying it's your black and brown neighbor, and you know, and they, or, they or hate folks you. from Mexico, exactly, right. um, and they hate you, then then that's really appealing. And maybe that's easier for you to say than the person who took it is the white, you know, wealthy guy who frankly is the person I want to be, you know? (laughs) It's like that aspiration. I'd rather, you know, choose to blame someone 
who's someone that society disdains than choose to blame someone who's somebody that society tells me I'm supposed to look up to. So that that's where the story comes in. I absolutely think we need to refill the public pool, right? We need to have a massive guaranteed jobs program in this country. Listen, everybody who wants to get to work rebuilding this country should be able to do so. And I strongly believe that. And we need to do it in a way that is green, that helps us prepare for what is happening to our climate and to our infrastructure. And and that should be a matter of public right. And you know who used to agree with me? Nearly 70% of white Americans yeah. before the civil rights movement, right? Did um So, yeah. Did did President Obama? I, I've got I've got so many questions for you. I love I love that you bring it back to policy all the time. Um, bring it home. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, I have so many questions I want to ask you, and I do need to get to some lister questions because folks wrote in some for you also. But um, okay, great. did 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 President Obama talk enough about race when he was president, or did he talk the right amount? Did he did he intentionally not do so. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts he, on his... He intentionally didn't do so. I mean, I think, you know, if you read his autobiography, it's it's pretty clear. But the problem is that race was always loud during his presidency. By oh, yeah. every, you know, every time he walked into a room, it's a black man. Every yeah. time he opened his mouth, it's a black man. And, you know, the right wing was really clarifying that this was going to be their core message, even more so than it had been, you know, under Reagan and under Nixon and all of that, where it already was. This this race was the conversation. And yet, because there was this idea that if Democrats didn't talk about race, you know, they could avoid it, that we, we left our best communicator, you know, uh, out of the conversation. And so it was totally... Um, like the conventional wisdom among among white Democrats who were advising President Obama that he shouldn't talk about race. But I, I think that I, I would have loved to have seen what he could have done to continue to do that bridge building that only he could have done and been more explicit about it. Do you um, think that, not you know, talking about fast. it? Do you think not talking about it helped him in places like Indiana, North Carolina, Wisconsin? I think it may have helped him. Because but not the country. His, and not the country and not even his own party, right? So we have these historic losses, right? He was talking about it in the sense that he was Black, right? And so him speaking, leading the country was already counter-stereotype. Him, you know, being some a kind of Black person that white Americans would want to hang out with was already doing the work, uh-huh. But you need to do more when it's not just Barack Obama. And and I think he 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 certainly knows that now. Okay. Um, I want to move on to some of the questions because yep. we had a Please. bunch that were yeah. written in for you. And I want to get okay, to a few of the really good ones. Um, you can send us your uh, questions and comments. You know how to do that on Twitter or Instagram at Politicon. Or you can email them in for our guests, podcasts at Politicon.com. Jesse from Savannah, Georgia asks... Are we further behind other nations when it comes to race, or are we just having the difficult conversations that many of them don't? Well, that's interesting. That's a really good question, Jesse. So if you compare other nations that have, you know, are, it's hard to find another nation that has our level of diversity and that has our history of being an apartheid state for so long. Hmm. Um, 
you know, where we were explicitly segregated, where it was right. in our laws and in our policies. So I was sitting here thinking, know, well, there are some diverse places like Canada, but you're right. They never had the the systemic issues that we did with slavery, et cetera. Right. Jim Crow. And so, right. and so Canada is a good parallel, right? Because but yes, they're doing a lot better. <laughs> they yeah. do a lot better, right? They do a lot better. They they have as a as a as an ethos that their diversity is their strength. Um, that's not our dominant ethos. Um, so we're not doing as well as we could be and we should be. I think it's costing us in How terms of pull that off? global competitiveness. <laughs> How did they pull well, that they, off? They just didn't have the economic interest in slavery that we have. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have the cultures and the laws and the beliefs that grew up to defend it by promoting a hierarchy of human value. Gosh, that's so telling and true. Um, Mary, wait, is that Mary? Mary from Phoenix, Arizona asks, do we need a new cultural, gosh, so I can't even read today. Mary from Phoenix asks, do we need a new national culture to separate us from the more diabolical yet distant parts of our past? I think so. I think that, um, you know, in the sum of us, I end on a very hopeful note talking about um, the solidarity dividends that I think we can unlock by, by working together across lines of race for the things that we all need. And I talk about a process called truth, racial healing, and transformation that local communities are doing all across the country. I, I spotlight Dallas, but there are so many others, um, to bring together stakeholders to say, what would it look like if we really jettisoned this idea, this belief in a hierarchy of human value? If we, if we really said, you know what, that's not what we believe anymore. We truly believe that we are all equal. What would it look like? Um, I think we need to start asking that question. I think we mm. need to enroll our communities in visioning processes around that. But we've got to let go of the resentment. Um, we've also got to, as you know, as I think you were pushing to have me say, Clay, I do think we need to have, um, you know, the, the racial justice community needs to project a vision of a future that includes everybody. Um, because if we don't explicitly say that, then, you know, the, the, the zero-sum story would, would have white people get very defensive about what demographic change means for them. We got a whole bunch of good ones, so I'm going to do two more. Um, yeah, and I'll instead be of three. Uh, Warren from, oh, sorry, Ava from Seattle, Washington. Who are the current leaders with the credibility to unite people of all colors around economic justice? Well, I think some of the current leaders in this country are actually grassroots organizers. They're workers who have been organizing for fifteen dollars an hour. Um, they are people who organize to get health care for, you know, working class folks on the ballot in Maine over the mm -hmm. veto of their Republican governor. Um, you know, they're policy they're, people, not showboats. That's <laughs> what you're they're, saying. They're people well, who really doing they're work. Organizers. They're organizers who are trying to make life better for themselves, their families, and their communities. Um, I think it's we saw flourishing of organizing activity in the past number of years. And, and I think that's been beautiful. It's made so many more leaders. And I think these are often people who are not paid to do the work. They're just mm -hmm. people who said, you know what, we need to make our lives better. And so I'm going to roll up my sleeves and link arms across race. That's, that's why I came away from my journey to write The Some of Us being really inspired by 
Um, I, listen, I totally, I, I love people who actually want to make a change instead of just saying they do or <laughs> pretending or doing something superficial. So I'll agree with that. Last one. Warren from Dallas, Texas asks, which has to come first, trust in our politicians or trust in the government? Trust in the government. Trust in the government because there's so much that the government does that is not about, you know, politicians politicking, right? Our public schools, our public libraries, our water systems, our roads and bridges, transit, you know, our 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 electric grid, right? We've got to trust in the idea that there are some things that we need to do together that we simply can't do alone. And then once we trust in in basically each other, which is what government is, then I think we need to be holding politicians accountable for their ability to deliver on that. So, yes, we need to trust in government first and not elect politicians who hate government to run the government. I can co-sign now and too. Um, anybody who has listened to this show um, with any regularity over the past year knows that there's one thing that I get that frustrates me more than well, I, I probably get frustrated more than I should, but um, one thing really frustrates me is when people, politicians, people who've come on the show, people in the news media, anywhere in life, even in my own personal life, identify the problem and bitch about the problem and complain about the problem and blame others for the problem and constantly talk about what the problem, but don't give a solution. And if you're mm -hmm. listening... Right now, Heather gives us a solution. Um, I, it may not be the right one, but it's a damn good one. Um, and I think it's a great one. I think it's the right one. Uh, and I love that about your book and about what you're doing and what you're talking about. It's called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It's not just like, it's not just similar to our mission here on this show and <laughs> how do we how the heck can we get along but it's an answer and we've talked so much about this issue over the past year especially since last summer um and i i had a i had we had i believe it was michael Steele on the show uh the week after george floyd's murder and mm -hmm. i asked him heather i said you know is this just going to be another case of people getting outraged and people being pissed off because they've seen this video and a groundswell of support for action that turns into no concrete solutions. And mm -hmm. he was hopeful. He was very hopeful that, that this time, that time would be different. And here we are nine, 10 months out from that. And I think about, you know, qualified immunity still in place. I think yep. about uh, police unions protecting cops that don't deserve being protected still in place. I think about the fact that district attorneys who are, um, who are, who rely on the police officers, are the ones who have to prosecute the same police officers still in place. Now, mm -hmm. we, we took down a lot of Confederate statues. I live in North Carolina. We had plenty ourselves. I didn't necessarily need to see that shit in my, my city. Um, I didn't <laughs> think it was necessary. I don't really have time for it. But I do think that if I had to choose between keeping a Confederate statue on the Capitol grounds or preventing more unarmed black men from being killed, Mm -hmm. I would have chosen 
the the latter, <laughs> and I would have let yes, the statue right. stay for now. And it gets very frustrating to me when I see a lot of superficial stuff happen and a lot mm-hmm. of changes that look good on camera and are very Instagram worthy, but where the was the where the hell was the move movement to actually end qualified immunity and end some of these things that were causing or perpetuating or allowing this violence to to happen uh no but we we all put we all put black images of of plain black pictures up on our instagram for a day so that solved the problem that mm-hmm. kind of shit pisses me off i don't get involved mm-hmm. with it i don't ra- i don't want confederate statues i don't have any pride in the confederate flag whatsoever as a southerner i don't want to see it but i also don't waste my time with it because there's really important shit that actually will save people's lives more. And it ticks me off. I just went on a soapbox tear here. It ticks me off when people talk about the problem and talk about superficial things and don't really address answers to it. And I am so thankful to you for writing this book. If you are listening and you have had any interest in these episodes that we've discussed this topic so many times over the past year, I really urge you to go grab a copy of The Some of Us, um, Heather McGee, uh, because it really is one of, it's, there's a reason that Ibram Kendi said it's the book he's been waiting for. I think it's one that we've all been waiting for because it identifies a problem, but it really lays out damn good solutions. And God bless you for it. Um, Heather McGee, how the heck are we going to get along? <laughs> Thank you so much, Clay. We're going to get along by by rejecting the zero-sum idea that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. We're going to get along by recognizing that ultimately it's pretty much the same things that drives all of us. We want to provide for our families. We want to meet our needs and have a shot at fulfilling our dreams. And, and basically the same kinds of solutions, different levels maybe, because of past injustice that is showing up in our wallets today, would work for all of us. As I said, we need to refill the public pool. We need to pay for college by, with the government, just like we did, you know, back in the day. We need to have a higher minimum wage. People need to be able to organize freely into unions to be able to bargain with their employers. We need a lot more housing. We need more child care. We need the, the big things that keep working families up at night. We need to recognize that we're all being kept up by those big things and that it's only the lie of of the racial zero sum that is stopping us from making the kinds of coalitions that we need to deliver all those gains for all of us.